Chapter Sixteen, Part One of Vandover and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Wybray. Vandover and the Brute by Frank Norris. Chapter Sixteen, Part One. That particular room in the Lick House was well toward the rear of the building, on one of the upper floors, and from its window one looked out upon a vast reach of roofs that rose little by little to meet the abrupt rise of Telegraph Hill. It was a sordid and grimy wilderness, topped with a grey maze of wires and pierced with thousands of chimney-stacks. Many of the roofs were covered with tin, long since blackened by rust and soot. Here and there could be seen clothes hung out to dry. Occasionally, upon the flanking walls of some of the larger buildings, was displayed an enormous painted sign, a violent contrast of intense black and staring white amidst the sooty brown and grey, advertising some tobacco, some newspaper, or some department store. Not far in the distance, two tall smokestacks of blackened tin rose high in the air, above the roof of a steam laundry, one very large, like the stack of a canada, the other slender, graceful, with a funnel-shaped top. All day and all night these stacks were smoking. From the first to the larger one rolled a heavy black smoke, very gloomy, waving with a slow and continued movement like the plume of some sullen warrior. But the other one, the tall and slender pipe, threw off a series of little white puffs, three at a time, that rose buoyant and joyous into the air like so many white doves, vanishing at last, melting away in the higher sunshine, only to be followed by another flight. They came three at a time, the pipe tossing them out with a sharp, gay sound like a note of laughter interrupted by a cough. But the interior of the room presented the usual dreary aspect of the hotel bedroom, cheerless, lamentable. The walls were whitewashed, and bare of pictures or ornaments, and the floor was covered with a dull red carpet. The furniture was a set, all the pieces having a family resemblance. On entering one saw the bed standing against the right-hand wall, a huge double bed with the name of the hotel in the corners of its spread and pillowcases. In the exact middle of the room, underneath the gas fixture, was the centre table, and upon it a pitcher of ice water. The blank white monotony on one side of the room was jarred upon by the grate and mantelpiece, iron, painted black, while on the mantelpiece itself stood a little porcelain match-safe with ribbed sides in the form of a truncated cone. Precisely opposite the chimney was the bureau, flanked on one side by the door of the closet, and on the other, in the corner of the room, by the stationary washstand with its new cake of soap and its three clean, glossy towels. On the wall to the left of the door was the electric bell and the directions for using it, and tacked upon the door itself a card as to the hours for meals, the rules of the hotel, and the extract of the code defining the liabilities of innkeepers, all printed in bright red. Everything was clean, defiantly, aggressively clean, and there was a clean smell of new soap in the air. But the room was bare of any personality. Of the hundreds who had lived there, perhaps suffered and died there, not a trace, not a suggestion remained. Their different characters had not left the least impress upon its air or appearance. 
only a few hairpins were scattered on the bottom of one of the bureau drawers, and two forgotten medicine bottles still remained upon the top shelf of the closet. This had been the appearance of Vandover's new home when he had first come to it, after leaving his suite of rooms in the huge apartment house on Sutter Street. He had lived here now for something over a year. It had all commenced with the seizure of his furniture by the proprietors of the apartment house. Almost before he knew it, he owed for six months room and board. When the extras were added to this bill, it swelled to nearly a thousand dollars. At first he would not believe it. It was not possible that so large a bill could accumulate without his knowledge. He declared there was a mistake, tossing back the bill to the clerk who had presented it, and shaking his head incredulously. This other became angry, offered to show the books of the house. The manager was called in and attempted to prove the clerk's statement by figures, dates, and extracts from the entries. Vandover was confused by their noise, and grew angry in his turn, vociferating that he did not propose to be cheated. The others retorted in a rage. The interview ended in a scene. But in the end they gained their point. They were right, and, at length, Vandover was brought around to see that he was in the wrong. But he had no ready money, and while he hesitated, unwilling to part with any of his books, or to put an additional mortgage upon the homestead, the hotel, after two warnings, suddenly seized upon his furniture. What a misery! In a moment of time it was all taken from him, all the lovely bric-a-brac, all the heavy pieces, all the little articles of virtue, which he had brought with such intense delight, and amongst which he had lived with such happiness, such contentment, such never-failing pleasure. Everything went. The Renaissance portraits, the pipe-rack, the chair in which the old gentleman had died, the Arisian bas-reliefs, and, worst of all, the stove, the famous tiled stove, the delightful cheery iron stove with the beautiful flamboyant ornaments. For the first few months after the seizure, Vandover was furious with rage and disappointment, persuaded that he could not live anywhere but in just such a room. It was as if he had been uprooted and cast away upon some barren, uncongenial soil. His new room in the hotel filled him with horror, and for a long time he used it only as a place where he could sleep and wash. For a long time, even his pliable character refused to fit itself to such surroundings, refused to be content between four enormous white walls, a stuccoed ceiling, and a dark red carpet. He passed most of his time elsewhere, reading the papers at the mechanic's library in the morning, and in the afternoon sitting about the hotel office and parlours until it was time to take his usual little four o'clock stroll on Kearney and Market Streets. He had long since become a familiar figure on this promenade. Even the women and girls of Flossie's type had ceased to be interested in this tall, thin young man with the tired, heavy eyes and blue-white face. One day, however, a curious instant did for a moment invest Vandover with a sudden dramatic interest. It was just after he had moved down to the Lick House, about a month after he had sold the block in the Mission. Vandover was standing at Lotter's Fountain, and the corner of Kearney and Market Streets, interested in watching a policeman and two boys re-harnessing a horse after its tumble. All at once he fell over flat into the street, jostling one of the flower-vendors and nearly upsetting him. 
He struck the ground with a sodden shock. His arms doubled under him, his hat rolling away into the mud. Bewildered, he picked himself up. Very few had seen him fall, but a little crowd gathered for all that. One asked if the man was drunk, and Vandover, terrified lest the policeman should call the patrol wagon, hurried off to a basement barber shop nearby, where he brushed his clothes, still bewildered, confused, wondering how it had happened. The fearful, nervous crisis which Vandover had undergone had passed off slowly. Little by little, bit by bit, he had got himself in hand again. However, the queer numbness in his head remained, and as soon as he concentrated his attention on any certain line of thought, as soon as he had read for any length of time, especially of late at night, the numbness increased. Somewhere back of his eyes, a strange blurring mist would seem to rise. He'd find it impossible to keep his mind fixed upon any subject. The words of a printed page would little by little lose their meaning. At first, this had been a source of infinite terror to him. He fancied it to be the symptoms of some approaching mental collapse. But as the weeks went by and nothing unusual occurred, he became used to it, and refused to let it worry him. If it made his head feel queer to read, the remedy was easy enough. He simply would not read. And though he had been a great reader, and at one time had been used to spend many delightful afternoons lost in the pages of a novel, he now gave it all up with an easy indifference. But, besides all this, the attack had left him with nerves all unstrung. Even his little afternoon walk on Kearney and Market Streets exhausted him. Any trifling and sudden noise, the closing of a door, the striking of a clock, would cause him to start from his place with a gasp and a quick catch at the heart. Toward evening, this little spasm of nerves would sometimes come upon him, even when there was nothing to cause it. And now he could no longer drop off to sleep without first undergoing a whole series of these recoils and starts that would sometimes bring him violently up to a sitting posture, his breath coming short and quick, his heart galloping, startled at he knew not what. At first he had intended to see a doctor, but he had put off carrying his intention into effect until he had grown accustomed to the whole matter. Otherwise he was well enough, his appetite was good, and when he finally did get to sleep, he would not wake up for a good eight hours. One evening, however, about three months after the first crisis, and just as Vandover was becoming well accustomed to the condition of body and mind in which it had left him, the second attack came on. It was fearful. Much worse than on the first occasion, and this time there was no room for doubt. Vandover knew that for the moment... He was actually insane. Ellis had been with Vandover most of that afternoon. The two had been playing cards in Vandover's room until nearly six o'clock. All the afternoon they had been drinking whiskey while they played, and by supper time neither of them had any appetite. Ellis refused to go down, declaring that if he should eat now it would make him sick. Vandover went down alone. But once in the dining room he found that he could not eat either. However, he knew that it was not the whisky. For two days his appetite had been failing him. The smell of food revolted him, and he left the supper table, going up to his bare and lamentable room, with the feeling that he was about to undergo a long spell of sickness. In the deserted hall, between the elevator and the door of his room, the second crisis came upon him all at once. 
It was so sudden that it was as if some enemy had leaped upon his back, springing out of the shadow, gripping him from behind, holding him close. Once more the hysteria shook him like a dry leaf. The little nervous starts came so fast that they ran together, mingling to form one long thrill of terror, the blind, unreasoning terror of something unknown. The numbness weighed down upon his brain until consciousness dwindled to a mere point and mercifully dulled the torture of his crippling nerves. It seemed to him that his hands and head were rapidly swelling to enormous size. All this he had felt before. It was his old enemy, but now with this second attack began a new and even stranger sensation. In his distorted wits, he fancied that he was in some manner changing, that he was becoming another man. Worse than that, it seemed to him that he was no longer human, that he was sinking, all in a moment, to the level of some dreadful beast. Later on in that same evening, Ellis met young Height, coming out of one of the theatres, and told him a story that Height did not believe. Ellis was very pale, and he seemed to young Height to be trying to keep down some tremendous excitement. If he was drunk, said Ellis, it was the strangest drunk I ever saw. He came back into the room on all fours, not on his hands and knees, you understand, but running along the floor upon the palms of his hands and his toes, and he pushed the door of the room open with his hand, nuzzling at the crack like any dog. Oh, it was horrible. I don't know what's the matter with Van. You should have seen him. His head was hanging way down and swinging from side to side as he came along. It shook all his hair over his eyes. He kept rattling his teeth together, and every now and then he would say, way down in his throat, so it sounded like growls, Wolf! 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 I got hold of him, and pulled him up to his feet. It was just as though he was asleep, and when I shook him, he came to all at once and began to laugh. What's the matter, Van? says I. What are you crawling on the floor that way for? I'm damned if I know says he, rubbing his eyes. I guess I must have been out of my head. Too much whiskey. Then he says, Put me to bed, will you, Bandy? I feel all gone in. Well, I put him to bed. I went out to get some bromide of potassium. He said that made him sleep and kept his nerves steady. Coming back, I met a bellboy just outside of Van's door and told him to ask the hotel doctor to come up. You see, I had not opened the door of the room yet, and while I was talking to the bellboy, I could hear the sound of something four-footed going back and forth inside the room. When I got inside, there was Van, perfectly naked, going back and forth along the wall, swinging his head very low, grumbling to himself. But he came to again as soon as I shook him, and seemed dreadfully ashamed and went to bed all right. He got to sleep finally, and I left the doctor with him, to come out and get something for my own nerves. What did the doctor say was the matter? asked young Height, in horror. Lycanthropy pathesis. I never heard the name before. Some kind of nervous disease. I guess Van had been hitting up a pretty rapid gait. And then I suppose he's had a good deal to worry him, too. Once more the attack passed off, leaving Vandover exhausted, his nerves all jangling, his health impaired. Every day he seemed to grow thinner. Great brown hollows grew under his eyes, 
and the skin of his forehead looked blue and tightly drawn. By degrees a deep gloom overcame him permanently. Nothing could interest him, nothing seemed worth while. Not only were his nerves out of tune, but they were jaded, deadened, slack. They were like harp-strings that had been played upon so long and so violently that now they could no longer vibrate unless swept with a very whirlwind. As he had foreseen, Vandover had returned again to vice, to the vice that was knitted into him now, fibre for fibre, to the ways of the brute that by degrees was taking entire possession of him. But he no longer found pleasure even in vice. Once it had been his amusement, now it was his occupation. It was the only thing that seemed to ease the horrible nervousness that of late had begun to prey upon him constantly. But though nothing could amuse him, on the other hand, nothing could worry him. In the end, the very riot of his nerves ceased even to annoy him. He had arrived at a state of absolute indifference. He had so often rearranged his pliable nature to suit his changing environment, that at last he found that he could be content in almost any circumstances. He had no pleasures, no cares, no ambitions, no regrets, no hopes. It was mere passive existence, an inert, plant-like vegetation, the moment's pause before the final decay, the last inevitable rot. One day, after he had been living nearly a year at the Lick House, Adams and Brunt, the real estate agents, sent him word that they had an offer for his property on California Street. It was the homestead. The English gentleman, the president of the fruit syndicate who had rented the house of Vandover, was now willing to buy it. His business was by this time on a firm and paying basis, and he had decided to make his home in San Francisco. He offered $25,000 for the house, including the furniture. Brunt had several talks with Vandover, and easily induced him to sell. "'You can figure it out for yourself, Mr. Vandover,' he said, as he pointed out his own calculations to him. "'Property has been going down in the city for the last ten years, and it will continue to do so until we can get a competing railroad through. Better sell when you can, and twenty-five thousand is a fair price. Of course, you'll have to pay off the mortgage. You won't get but about fifteen thousand out of it.' but at the same time you won't have to pay the interest on that mortgage to the banks. There will be so much saved a month. Add to that what you could get for your 15,000 at, say, 6%, and you would have a monthly income nearly equal to the present rent of the house, and much more certain, too. Suppose your tenant should go out. Then where would you be? All right, all right, answered Vandover, nodding his head vaguely. Go ahead. I don't care. He parted from his old home with as much indifference as he had parted from his block in the mission. Vandover signed the deed that made him homeless, and at about the same time the first payment was made. Ten thousand dollars was deposited in one of the banks to his credit, and a cheque sent to him for the amount. The very next day Vandover drew it against for five hundred dollars. At one time, he had had an ambition to buy back his furniture from the huge apartment house in which he had formerly lived, and with it to make his cheerless bedroom in the lick house seem more like a home. 
He felt it almost as a dishonour to have strangers using this furniture, sitting in the great leather chair in which the old gentleman had died, staring stupidly at his Renaissance portraits and copies of Assyrian bas-reliefs. Above all, it was torture to think that other hands than his own would tend the famous tiled and flamboyant stove, a stove that had its moods, its caprices, like any living person, a stove that had to be coaxed and humoured, a stove that he alone could understand. He had told himself that if ever again he should have money enough, he would bring back this furniture to him. At first, its absence had been a matter for the keenest regret and grief, he had been so used to pleasant surroundings that he languished in his new quarters as in a prison. His indulgent, luxurious character continually hungered after subdued, harmonious colours, pictures, ornaments, and soft rugs. His imagination was forever covering the white walls with rough stone-blue paper and placing screens, divans, and window seats in different parts of the cold, bare room. One morning, he had even gone so far as to pin about the walls little placards which he had painted with a twisted roll of the hotel letter paper dipped into the inkstand. Pipe rack here, Mona Lisa here, stove here, window seat here. He had left them up there ever since, in spite of the chambermaid's protests and Ellis's clumsy satire. Now, however, he had plenty of money. He would have his furniture back within the week. He came back from the bank, the money in his pocket, and went up to the room directly, with some vague intention of writing to the proprietors of the apartment house at once. But as he shut the door behind him, leaning his back against it and looking about, he suddenly realised that his old-time desire was past. He had become so used to these surroundings that it now no longer made any difference to him whether or not they were cheerless, lamentable, barren. It was like all his other little ambitions. He had lost the taste for them. Nothing made much difference after all. His money had come too late. Why should he spend his five hundred dollars on something that could no longer amuse him? It would be much wiser to spend it all in having a good time somewhere. Champagne dinners with Flossie, or betting on the races. He did not know exactly what. It was true that even these alternatives would not amuse him very much who would fall back upon them as things of habit. For that matter, everything was an ennui, and Vandover began to long for some new pleasure, some violent, untried excitement. Since the sale of the block in the mission, he had seen but little of Geary, young Haight, had not been his companion since the time when Turner Ravis had broken with him. But little by little, he had begun to associate with Ellis and his friend the dummy, Almost every evening the three were together, sometimes at the theatre, sometimes in the back rooms of the Imperial, sometimes even in the parlours of certain houses, amid the murmur of heavy silks and the rustle of stiffly starched skirts. At times they would be drunk, four nights of the week, and on these occasions it was tactically understood between Ellis and Vandover that they should try to get the dummy so full that he could talk. However, Ellis's vice was gambling, he and the dummy often passed the whole night over their cards, and as Vandover came more and more under Ellis's influence, succumbing to it as weakly as he had succumbed to the influence of Charlie Geary, he began to join these parties. They played Van John at five dollars a corner. Vandover won as often as he lost, but the habit of cards grew upon him steadily. 
Toward eleven o'clock, the evening of the day upon which he had drawn his five hundred, Vandover went around to the Imperial looking for his two friends. He found Ellis drinking whiskey all alone in one of the little rooms, as was his custom. Fifteen minutes later, the dummy and Flossie joined them. Flossie had grown stouter since Vandover had first known her, nearly ten years ago. She had a double chin, and puffy, discoloured pockets had come under her eyes. Now her hair was dyed, her cheeks and lips rouged, and her former air of health and good spirits gone. She never laughed. She had smoked so many cigarettes that now her voice hardly rose above a whisper. At one time she had been accustomed to boast that she never drank, and it had been one of her peculiarities for which she was well known. But on this occasion she joined Ellis in his whisky. She had long since departed from her old-time rule of temperance, and nowadays drank nothing else but whisky. She had even become well known for the quantity of whisky she could drink. For half an hour the four sat around the little table, talking about the new enormous Sutro baths that were building at that time. After a while Flossie left them, and the dummy began to imitate the motions of someone dealing cards, looking at the same time inquiringly into their faces. "'How about that, Bandy?' asked Vandover. "'Shall we have a game tonight?' The man, a few words, merely nodded his head and drank off the rest of his whisky at a swallow. They all went up to Vandover's room. Vandover got out the cards, the celluloid chips, and a fresh box of cigars. The dummy held up two fingers of his left hand, shutting them together afterward with his right, and making a hissing noise between his teeth. He raised his eyebrows at Vandover. Vandover understood, and, ringing for a bellboy, ordered up three bottles of soda in siphon bottles. The game was Van et Un, or, as they called it, Van John. They cut for banker. Ellis turned the first ace, and Vandover bought the bank from him. For the first hour they were very jolly, laughing and talking back and forth at each other, the dummy especially communicative, continually scribbling upon his writing pad, holding it toward the others. But it was not necessary for them to put their replies in writing. He understood from watching the movement of their lips. The luck had not declared itself as yet. None of them had lost or won very much. The bellboy brought up the siphons. The dummy took off his coat, and the other two followed his example. They were all smoking, and an acrid blue haze filled the room, making a golden blur about each gas globe. But little by little the passion of the gambling seized upon them. The luck had begun to declare itself, alternating between Ellis and the dummy. Vandover lost steadily. Twice already his bank had been broken, and he had been forced to buy in. The play resolved itself into two parts. Vandover struggling to keep up with the game on one side, and on the other a great battle going on between Ellis and the dummy. Long since they had ceased to laugh, and not a word was spoken. Each one was absorbed in the game, intently watching the cards as they were turned. The four gas-jets of the chandelier flared steadily, filling the room with a crude, raw light that was reflected with a blinding glare from the four staring white walls. The room grew hot, the layer of foul, warm air just beneath the ceiling slowly descending. The acrid tobacco smoke no longer rose, but hung in low, slow-waving threads just above their heads. They played on steadily. A great stillness grew in the room, 
a stillness broken only by the little rattle of chips and subdued rustle of the shuffled cards. Once Vandover stopped, just time enough to throw off his vest, his collar and his scarf. For a moment the luck seemed about to settle on him. He was still banking, and twice in succession he drew Van John, both times winning heavily from the dummy, and a little later tried Ellis at twenty, when the latter had staked on nearly a third of his chips. But in the next half-dozen hands Ellis got back the lead again, winning from both the others. From this time on it was settled. The luck suddenly declared openly for Ellis, the dummy in Vandover merely fighting for second place. Ellis held his lead. At one o'clock he was nearly fifty dollars ahead of the game. The profound silence of the room seemed to widen about them. After midnight, the noises in the hotel, the ringing of distant call bells, the rattle of dishes from the kitchens, the clang of closing elevator doors, gradually ceased. Only at long intervals one heard the hurried step of a bellboy in the hall outside, and the clink of the ice in the water pitcher that he was carrying. Outside, a great quiet seemed, in a sense, to rise from the sleeping city. The noises in the streets died away. The last electric car went down Kearney Street, getting under way with a long, minor wail. Occasionally, a belated coupé, a nighthawk, rattled over the cobbles, while close by, from over the roofs, the tall, slender stack upon the steam laundry puffed incessantly, three puffs at a time, like some kind of halting clock. The room became more and more close. None of them would take the time to open the window. From ceiling to floor the air was fouled by their breathing, by the tobacco smoke, and by the four flaring gas jets. By this time a sombre excitement burnt in their eyes and quivered in their fingers. Never for an instant did their glances leave the cards. Ellis was drinking whiskey again, mixed with soda, his hand continually groping for the glass with a mechanical gesture. The dummy was so excited he could not keep his cigar alight, and contented himself with chewing the end of a hysterical motion of his jaws. The perspiration stood in beads on the back of Vandover's hands, running down in tiny rivulets between his fingers. His teeth were shut close together, and he was breathing short through his nose. A fine trembling had seized upon his hands, so that the chips in his palm rattled like castanets. In the stale and murky atmosphere of the overheated room, in the midst of the vast silence of the sleeping city, they played on steadily. Then they began to plunge, agreeing to play a no-limit game, and raising the value of a red chip to ten dollars. At times they even played with the coins themselves when their chips were exhausted. Vandover had lost all his ready money, and now for a long time had been gambling with the five hundred dollars he had that day drawn from the bank. Ellis had practically put the dummy out of the play, and now the game was between him and Vandover. Ellis was banking, and at length offered to sell the bank to either one of them. For the first time since the real gambling began, they commenced to talk a little, but in short brief sentences, answering by monosyllables and by signs. How much for the bank? inquired Ellis, holding up the deck and looking from one to the other. Instantly the dummy wrote ten dollars in figures on his pad and showed it to him. Vandover looked at what the dummy had written and said, Fifteen. Twenty, scribbled the dummy, as he watched Vandover's lips form the word. Twenty-five, returned Vandover. The dummy hesitated a moment and then wrote thirty. 
Ellis shook his head, saying, I'll keep the bank myself at that. Forty dollars! cried Vandover. The dummy shook his head, leaning back in his chair. Ellis shoved the pack across the table to Vandover, and Vandover gave him a twenty-dollar bill and two red chips. On Vandover's very first deal around, the dummy stood on the second card for twelve chips. Ellis bet twenty-five in his first card, and, as he got the second, turned both of them face up. He had two jacks. Twenty-five on each of these, he said. I'll draw to each one. Vandover looked at his own card. It was a ten spot. At once he grew reckless, and seized with a sudden folly, resolved to attempt a great coup. Double up, he ordered. The dummy set out twelve more chips, and Ellis another fifty, making his bet an even hundred. Vandover began to deal to Ellis. On the first jack, Ellis drew eighteen and stood at that. The first card that fell to the second jack was an ace. Van John, he remarked quietly. The dummy drew three cards and stood on nineteen. Vandover turned up his own card and began to deal for himself. He already had a ten. Now he drew a seven-spot and king in succession. The bank pays, he exclaimed. He paid the dummy twenty-four chips. He gave Ellis fifty for the eighteen he had drawn on his first jack, and one hundred for the Van John upon the second. Since the latter combination called for double the amount wagered, Besides this, the bank was lost to him. Including the forty that he had paid for the bank, he had lost in all two hundred and fourteen dollars. Never in his life had Vandover played so high a game. Never before had he won or lost more than fifty dollars at a sitting. But he was content to have it thus. Here at last was the new pleasure for which he had longed, the fresh violent excitement that alone could rouse his jaded nerves, the one thing that could amuse him. However, the failure of his coup had left him without chips. He was out of the game. He decided that he would stop. More than half of his five hundred dollars was gone already. He drank off a glass of soda, the dregs of one of the siphon bottles, and got up yawning, shivering a little, and stretching his arms high above. The other two played on steadily. The dummy began to gain slowly upon Ellis, playing very cautiously, betting only upon face cards, aces, and ten spots. Twice Ellis offered to sell him the bank, but he refused, fearful lest it should change his luck. Vandover sat behind the dummy's chair, watching his game, but at length, worn out, he began to drop off to sleep, waking every now and then with a sudden leap and recoil of all his nerves. An hour later, the persistent scratching of a match awoke him. Ellis and the dummy were still playing, and the dummy was once more relighting the stump of his cigar. Ellis continued to deal, winning at almost every play. A great pile of chips and money lay at his elbow. For a few minutes Vandover watched the dummy's game, leaning forward in his chair, his elbows on his knees. But it was evident that the dummy had lost his nerve. Ellis's continued winnings had at length demoralised him. At one time he would bet heavily on worthless cards, and at another would throw back nines and tens for no apparent reason. Finally Ellis dealt him a queen, which he kept, betting ten chips. His next card was a seven spot. He signed to Ellis that he would stand. Ellis drew twenty and three cards. 
Vandover could not restrain an exclamation of impatience at the dummy's stupidity. What a fool a man must be to stand on seventeen with only two in the game. All at once he tossed twenty dollars across the table to Ellis, saying, Give me that in chips, I'm coming in again. Once more he resumed his seat at the table, and Ellis dealt him a hand. But Vandover's interruption had, for an instant, taken Ellis's mind from the game. He stirred in his chair and looked about the room, puffing out his cheeks and blowing between his lips. Say, this room is close enough to strangle you. Open the window behind you, Van. You're nearest to it. As Vandover raised the curtain, he uttered a cry. Look here, will you? It was morning. The city was flooded by the light of the sun already an hour high. The sky was without a cloud. Over the roofs and amongst the grey maze of telegraph wires, swarms of sparrows were chittering hoarsely. And as Vandover raised the window, he could hear the newsboys far below in the streets chanting the morning's papers. Come on, Van, exclaimed Ellis impatiently. We're waiting for you. That night decided it. From that time on, Vandover's only pleasure was gambling. Night and day he sat over the cards, the passion growing upon him as he continued to lose, for his ill luck was extraordinary. It was a veritable mania, a wild blind frenzy that knew no limit. At first he had contented himself with a game in which twenty or thirty dollars was as much as he could win or lose at a sitting, but soon this pulled upon him. He was obliged to raise the stakes continually in order to arouse in him the interest, the keen, tense excitement that his jaded nerves craved. The five hundred dollars that he had drawn from the ten thousand, the first payment on his old home, melted away within a week. Only a few years ago Vandover would have stopped to reflect upon the meaning of this, would have resisted the temptation that drew him constantly to the gambling table. But the idea of resistance never so much as occurred to him, he did not invest his fifteen thousand, but drew upon it continually to satisfy his last new craze. It was not with any hope of winning that he gambled. The desire of money was never strong in him. It was only the love of the excitement at the moment. Little by little the fifteen thousand in the bank dwindled. It did not all go in cards. Certain habits of extravagance grew upon Vandover, the natural outcome of his persistent gambling, the desire of winning easily being balanced by the impulses to spend quickly. He took a certain hysterical delight in flinging away money with both hands. Now it was the chartering of a yacht for a ten days cruise about the bay, or it was a bicycle bought one week and thrown away the next, a fresh suit of clothes each month, gloves worn but once, gold pieces thrust into Flossie's pockets, Suppers given to booth actresses, twenty-four-hour acquaintances, a racehorse bought for eight hundred dollars, resold for two hundred and fifty, rings and scarfpins given away to the women and girls of the Imperial, and a whole world of follies that his poor distorted wits conceived from hour to hour. His judgment was gone, his mind unbalanced. All his life Vandover had been sinking slowly lower and lower. This, however, was the beginning of the last plunge. The process of degeneration, though inevitable, had been gradual as long as he indulged generally in all forms of evil. It was only now when a passion for one particular vice absorbed him that he commenced to rush headlong to his ruin. The fifteen thousand dollars, 
the price of his old home he gambled or flung away in little less than a year. He never invested it, but ate into it day after day, sometimes to pay his gambling debts, sometimes to indulge an absurd and extravagant whim, sometimes to pay his bill at the lick house, and sometimes for no reason at all, moved simply by a reckless desire for spending. End of chapter 16, part 1 Recording by Adam Wybray